Good morning. It's October. October the 21st, 2022. It's the time of Bo Blimtock. The age of Grinkin. Do you live in Scompton? Do you live in Scompton, my friend? Do you do you live someplace north northeast of chaos? Do you hear the voices of the dark calling out like a mad wolf drunk on whiskey? Are you of the age of the French bulldog that froths at the mouth after having eaten a baby? Because it's Friday, baby. And if you're not in a good mood on Friday, you have to ask why. Who broke your heart, baby? Who left you struggling in the ditches of life? Who was hunting you at 2 a.m.? That's right. It's almost 8 a.m. Mountain Standard Time in Utah. Don't know what time it is where you are listening to this. How could I? Unless I embedded some sort of weird mind virus that somehow entrained your consciousness to sync up with a quantum computer here in Utah so I could read your mind, but I can't. Not yet. Can't do it yet, baby. So, I have a listener who gave me some feedback about a podcast I did. The one I did, the last one. Um, (laughs) Yeah. That last beauty. The complexity trap. And the comment was that I sounded really angry. And that maybe I was getting angrier and angrier in recent podcasts. And I think there's some truth to that. I don't think that's false. I think there's some truth to it. Um, And I'm not sure that I can tell you, well, crap, you know. I'm going to be less angry now. I don't know. Anger is a lot like fear. In a lot of ways, because in, in, in a sense, anger and fear both operate on a certain level out, out, you know, within what we would call ignorance. You know, they, they sort of spring from ignorance. It's not on purpose necessarily, but anger and fear often come from a lack of understanding. Sometimes it's righteous anger. Okay, for a legitimate reason. Sometimes it's because we just don't really understand what's going on. So we're either going to go fight or flight. Anger or fear. That's not really why I've been angry. But that can that can make people crazy. I think one reason I've been angrier is because I, I have a general feeling that the, whatever you want to call it, the collective unconscious of humanity is at a breaking point. You know, it's like a boiler, but without a release valve. And it's under tremendous pressure. And I would probably say 
we face many challenges. But anybody who is ever going to give you advice about survival would probably say the following. In any survival situation, your greatest challenge is to keep your head. It's not to go crazy. It's not to just get angry at everything. It's not simply to be afraid and run. There was this dumb movie that came out almost 10 years ago called, what was it called? Um, World War Z. And Brad Pitt is like this freaking expert. And he says, you don't want to stay in one place. You want to move around. You want to run around. And I thought at the time, that's some of the dumbest fucking advice I'd ever heard. I mean, yeah, they set up the movie so the people that run around kind of live. But also the people that hunker down and defend themselves live too. They kind of give that away towards the end. Um, the reality is whatever decision you make in a survival situation, don't make it out of fear. And you probably don't want to make it out of anger. That's just good advice. Fight or flight is not a good state of mind for being rational. It's not the part of your brain that's being turned on. Fight or flight is part of the ancient brain. You know, the brain of the reptile, the brain of the crocodile, the brain of the great white shark, and these are magical, mystical, powerful creatures, and God bless. But we're humans. We're not great white sharks. We're not crocodiles. So yeah, I've been a little bit angry. The anger, I think, is connected to this general malaise of the human soul. And if I sound crazy, that's okay. I'm okay with sounding crazy at this point. I told my brother yesterday, I kind of hoped I was insane. Like I suffered from a brain tumor or some kind of schizophrenia. It's clear that the hospital nearby can't diagnose me, but perhaps there's a shaman in Nepal or some magical mystical worker in Brazil. Someone who took over for that weird freakazoid. What was he? Brother John? Sister John? Yeah. Somebody doing mystical, magical surgery. Hiding the chicken gizzards in a bucket as he pretends to pull out the tumors. I saw that on That's Incredible. Which also, you know, That's Incredible means you just that's not believable. Yeah. John of God, right? I believe he, he or someone like him was on That's Incredible. Psychic surgery. Yeah, I don't recommend it because it probably doesn't work. Um, beyond the placebo effect, right? Which always works. The placebo effect is a powerful thing. It, and it really does work. It works in every direction. But it works. Anyways... Um, I can't tell you I'm going to be less angry. I said something in, in yesterday, I think not yesterday, but maybe it was the day before. Yeah. God damn, these days are bleeding into each other. I said something on Tuesday, I think, to the effect that, you know, fuck your kids. And some of you may have heard that and not understood it. Here's what I meant. If you're raising a family, the person who is responsible for caring for your family if you're a parent, is you. That's your magical job. I'm not saying you can't have friends. I'm not saying you can't have a community. You should have these things. I don't mean, you know, one of Hillary Clinton's it takes a village, you know, to plunder um, villages. I mean an actual community of people that live in freedom and peace with each other. Something like that. Not a prison. 
And so in that kind of world, you can depend upon old Uncle Grumbo to watch your dog. And you can depend upon Sister Sally to cook your kid's dinner next week. You can depend upon each other because you form bonds. It's not some synthetic social media bullshit. Okay, pal? But at the end of the day, even in an ideal community, your kids are your kids. Okay, whoever is the in loco parenti, whoever is the person responsible, that is the person responsible. It's a circular thing, but it's a kind of truth that you just have to accept. And and with respect to American children, on a on a how can I put this? On an abstract basis, they're no better or no worse than any other kids around the world. I'm sorry. All these kids are relatively innocent compared to their adults. All these children who, frankly, many of them who were submitted to just child abuse in 2020 and 2021, and that's not ancient history. That's just a couple years ago, baby. They were abused by their society. They were subjected to psychological warfare, and they weren't even adults yet. You know, you need to keep telling me about your kids and how I should care about... I cared enough about your kids to call out your bullshit. All y'all. I don't care who you are. If you're a parent out there and you expect the government to take care of your kids, here's what I'll tell you. In that euphemistic gangster kind of sense, they will. They'll take care of your kids. But in that actual Christian, peaceful, loving kind of way, no. They're not going to do that. They will subject your kids to psychological torf torture and propaganda and, you know, various forms of public education. And by the time they're done going through a system that rewards bully bullying and manipulation, they will have maybe the ability to do basic algebra. And that's if there's not a pandemic, right? If there's a pandemic, don't worry. They'll, they will expose your kids to every kind of manipulation. And they will definitely take whatever crooked poison they've come up with and inject it in their arms. So what I would say is that there's a person in this world who should care about your kids. And if you're lucky enough to live in a good community, maybe you have a circle of friendship that helps you. But there's absolutely a person that needs to care about your kids, and that's you. I don't have any kids. The downside of not having kids is that there's nothing. When I'm dead, they take my body to the mountains and they dump me. I've already put that in my fucking will. Take me to the mountains, dump me someplace, maybe take a GPS coordinate and give it to my you know, relatives, maybe in some kind of email. I don't know. If they want to go visit some, some part of the... You went to mountains in Utah and go try to find my bones. By then, I hope the coyotes will have had their fill. Not having kids is a kind of loneliness. It's not the only form of loneliness, but it is. It's a kind of loneliness. It's the kind that comes when you get to be old and the having sex and the having lots of friends you get drunk with every weekend is no longer a thing. And the only thing you'd have left at that point is a family. 
So definitely being without kids is a form of loneliness, especially if you have a heart. Now me, it's questionable if I have one. You never know. It could be broken and broken for good. So yeah, I got angry, and I said some terrible things that I didn't really mean, or I don't know if you could understand. I also said some things that might have sounded a little bit racist, and on that point, I just don't care. I don't. It's not that I actually think I'm a racist. It's more like I've reached a point in the stupid game, and it's another PSYOP game. The racism game is another form of military psychological warfare they've been submitting us to, exposing us to, yeah, since the spring of 2020, at least, probably earlier. You know, it's not like they've never done this. It's just we're talking about the extremes right now. So now I'm talking about the extremes of the BLM Antifa springtime, summertime riot party of 2020. And that was fun. It was mostly government-supported BS, but it was interesting. Some, you know, useful idiots and probably a few victims. It's not accidental on that day, and I think it was July. I think it was a day in July, I've got some video, that the Seattle Police Department cordoned off the whole area of Chap Chas during the cleanup. You know why? Because they suspected something that I suspected. They were gonna find some dead bodies, maybe even some dead body parts, perhaps a finger or a tattoo in the stool. That none of the people, none of the press, none of the journalists were allowed to even get close to Chaz Chop when they were cleaning it up that day, that rainy day. And if you, you know, if you understand anything about the weather, and and again with a podcast, you use sarcastic quotes and you can't see them. I don't even know if that rain was an accident. I mean, if you wanted to pick a day to do a dirty cleanup of a dirty deed, that dark rainy day when they did it made sense. Yeah. Racism's another way they divide us, another way they turn on the reptile brain and turn us against each other. So here's what I'll tell you about me. If someone says, are you racist, Dan? I have a simple answer. I'm not racist. I'm the most racist. I am the most racist person on the planet. If they say, Dan, are you racist? No, man, I'm not just racist. I'm incredibly fucking racist. I'm the most racist person ever. I'm just really racist. Yeah, that is my only answer now. I don't care if you think, oh, Dan, that's not nice. You shouldn't say that. You know what I don't think is nice? Judging people before you know crap about them. It's not nice. 
me, I've got opinions about Bill Gates and President Biden and certain people because I have limited information and from what I can tell, they are giant steaming piles of shit. But who knows? Maybe if I met Bill Gates in person, he might be the coolest dude ever. I don't think so, but maybe. I can't judge you for your skin color because I've got one. It's called ginger. I can't judge you for the color of your hair because I've got one of the least interesting, most problematic, and probably most prejudiced against hair colors. It's red. Nobody likes a... It's, you know why they say red-headed stepchild, motherfucker? There's a reason for that, dickhead. So I understand color. If you're black, if you're brown, if you think your color is yellow or red or green, I don't give a fuck. I really don't. But if you go around acting like a piece of shit, then I promise you, I'll have an opinion. If Bill Gates were black, do you think my opinion about him would be different? No. In and then you say, no, you would hate him more. No. No. If anything, the propaganda I was exposed to in public school would point the arrow the other direction. But the point is, it doesn't matter. Bill Gates is not a product of his skin color, baby. Bill Gates is not a product even of his class. There are rich people who have money who are, who are not total pieces of shit, or at least not to his level. Bill Gates is not a product of being a guy, okay? Men are not inherently evil. Women are not inherently good. I had six sisters. So, um, Bill Gates is a product of his own choices. He's a product of his own history, and to some extent, we're all victims of history, but he could have made different choices. And as an adult, he's made choices that, to me, make him worthy of criticism and attack and revulsion. And he seems like a very disgusting person, but it has nothing to do with the color of his skin. So if somebody asked me, am I racist? or anti-Semitic, or any of those things. I'm not going to play that stupid fucking game. Well, I don't know. I guess I was raised a white man, a red-headed stepchild. I worked in the fields, so that must have made me racist. And I did work in the fields. I picked bulbs. And I don't know what cotton picking was like, but digging for things in the dirt is, is not so dignified. But it's work. I bought a BB gun with my bald money. We hunted for Bigfoot. So yeah, I'm angry and I hate kids and I'm racist and probably sexist and probably homophobic probably anti-Semitic, and I'm going to get all that out of the way. All of it. If you want to chew on whatever you think is, is prejudiced about Dan, you chew on it all day like it's your cud. I have no interest in it. That entire game is so stupid and so transparently stupid, I am surprised that people, intelligent people of every race, are mystified by that dumb game. I don't care if it's Germans in the 1930s. I don't care if it's weird skinheads. 
I don't care if it's some black army, a black revolution. I don't give a fuck. The fact that people are so obsessed with the color of their skin is one of the reasons why we are in a lot of fucking trouble. The fact that people can be controlled that way, that they can be told that person's bad because they're white, that person's good because they're black. The fact that people can be lulled into that kind of stupidity. That's why we're in trouble, baby. But at the end of the day, I don't know. I think the only race of people I actually hate are Danish people. And you know something? Scientifically, quantitatively, philosophically, ethically, historically, in every context of, you know, proper gardening and artistic history, the Danish people are unquestionably the most evil people on earth. Unquestionably, Danish people are the problem. But no one's going to do nothing about them because they're so cute and nice and they got all these fucking bakeries they open up and they sell you shit that gives you diabetes like the fucking Kringla or whatever the fuck that is. No one's going to stop them. No one. They, they rule Europe, really. I mean, <laughs> they want to rule the world, the Danes. people. They want to rule the frickin' world. And I don't want to dwell on this, because this wasn't even really a topic. It's just that, like I said, somebody, you know, somebody I know told me, you know, Dan, it seems like you've been angry. And that is true. And I can't tell you, just because it might sound like I'm in a better mood this morning, that I'm actually in a better mood. I'm not. I'm not, for lots of different reasons. Um, it's not as simple as, <sighs> there was this meme that floated around Twitter starting many years ago of a little kid standing in front of a house that's on fire. I think it's a little girl, but that's irrelevant, boy or girl. This little kid with a crooked smile on their face standing in front of a house that's on fire. And it's kind of an off-putting image because, you know, you, you expect a kid to be crying with one of their parents, their mom or their dad, or both hugging them as their house is on fire. This kid looks like they just got what they wanted for Christmas. And so it's very off-putting. It puts you into that state of mind where you wonder to yourself, okay, what's going on here, baby? What's going on? What's the dealio? Why are we in Sector 8 when we should be in Region 12? You know, And I would say before I close out this very long introduction that that image has stuck with me because sometimes I feel that way. I, I can't lie. In 20, God, 2015, 2016, when I was living in the Riley Towers in Indianapolis, and I'd already figured out that shit was going to go sideways in about five years. And guess what? 
I was approximately right. And thinking about those next five years, I mostly just wanted to have a place like that spot on the eighth floor. That Those buildings, those Riley Towers are well built. You know, you get a little bit of concertina wire, you toss it down the stairwell, you barricade a few doors, have yourself a rope ladder. And if you if you can just provide yourself 90 days, get the kitty litter and the garbage sacks to put inside the toilet. And if you can just make it for 90 days, chances are you'd have all the guns and ammo you'd need, despite the fact that you already got an AR, a combat shotgun, a 38 snub, and a Glock 19, a 357 Magnum. So you're totally squared away. It's like, it's not that you need the guns that the, that the dead people will drop because many will drop in the first few weeks. It's that you can go pick up extra guns and extra ammo. And then you can stay holed up in the Riley Towers. And you can be like Charlton Heston in Omega Man. And that was a nice vision, but that wasn't reality. And that vision was fueled by that same crooked smile, by that same kid and that same meme, that same kind of notion that somehow... One way of dealing with this is to kind of almost be hopeful about it, and that's wrong. It's wrong. It's not that you should be stupid or ignorant or pretend that reality is not reality, but schadenfreude is a bad thing. Yeah, human beings often get pleasure from seeing the misfortune of others. It happens. In fact, you could argue, and I've argued, and others before me have argued, that much of the buttress of what we call comedy or humor is really about schadenfreude. It's really about the pleasure we take in the misfortune of others. Nobody really wants to be made fun of. Nobody wants to be the butt of a joke. But how often is it we enjoy other people being the butt of the joke, other people being made fun of? And with respect to our discourse, especially at what some of you call, you voters call the political level, it's almost all schadenfreude. All of it. All of it is one kind of broken tragedy after another. Some of it might be real. Some of it might not be. All of it designed to keep you immobilized, confused, and angry. The never-ending Clinton trauma drama started when I was in my 20s. I'm in my 50s now. So if you ask me, do any of these stupid political stories ever get resolved? The simple answer is not really. Their purpose is not to be resolved. There is no justice in it, but it will be designed to piss you off. It will be designed to make you angry. And that brings us full circle to me being angry in podcasts like that little kid smiling at the house on fire. So I have a brother. I have one brother. I have six sisters. One of my sisters is in heaven. That leaves five sisters on earth, at least to my knowledge. I haven't really spoken with much of my family since the monkey herpes. Not that often. Every once in a while, I, I talk to a sister of mine in Indianapolis. She's pretty cool. Every once in a while, I talk to a sister of mine in Seattle, um, technically north, excuse me, south of Seattle. She's pretty cool. And my brother has been calling. 
um, a lot more recently. I don't know, you know. But but really overall, I've had very little contact since the monkey herpes began. Um, and since I left Seattle in 2021, and it'll be two years here in just, you know, four or five months. So I guess we're at a year and a half. But ever since I've been here, even on bad days, I haven't really looked back. I'd rather be here, you know. On the bad days, mostly it's the stuff I brought with me. Maybe like 95%. So it wouldn't matter where I was. I could be in Hawaii on a bad day. And it would be the same as being in Utah. And probably a little worse to be in Seattle. But it's stuff I brought with me. It's, it's my own baggage, so to speak. Um, so I got a brother. And I've, you know not necessarily been the easiest person to deal with since the monkey herpes started, mainly because I am 100% certain I am right about it having been a manufactured bullshit thing. And the only question you can ask is why. That's a fair question, and there's no really good answer why the, many of the governments of the world would gaslight their people for a couple years. And frankly, it's not over. I read an article today, China shutting down another city. Or no, it was Foxconn or it was something else. It was some type of Tesla plant. The point is, there was some COVID alert. And you need to put that up against as, as a bookend. That whole narrative of 2020 and 2021 that China did it the right way. And yet they're still shutting down places here and shutting down places there. Do you really think any of the monkey herpes story is real? Yeah, uh, some science fiction writer in the early 80s talks about Rona or Wuhan. And there's a magical Wuhan lab. And now you got the narrative of, of all kinds of Ukrainian labs. And you got Rand Paul wanting the truth, truth, truth about the lie, lie, lie. He's a limited hangout, isn't he? You guys lied about how bad it was. You lied about the vaccines. You know what, Rand? The whole fucking thing was a fucking lie. And chances are you know that. And I don't know why you're keeping it a secret. I don't give a fuck. But if you don't know, it was all bullshit. The whole thing. The race war was bullshit. The monkey herpes is bullshit. And there's a real good chance that this Ukraine conflict is bullshit too. Because I have no really good evidence that it's real. There's all kinds of drama. There's all kinds of threats of nuclear war. But for the most part, here in Utah, I can't tell any of it. Any of it is fucking real. At all. I do know it serves a purpose. And, and re with respect to certain topics, like, I don't know, research around the Arctic Circle, it keeps that shit under control, doesn't it, for at least a fucking year or two towards the end. That's helpful. Given that most of the Arctic borders Russia, yeah, pretty fucking helpful, baby. Um, I haven't been the easiest person to talk to, and yet, you know, my brother still calls me. I'm going to tell you something. When I was a kid, one of these Christmases, I think it was 1977, but it could have been 78, perhaps 79. But one of those Christmases, he got one of those really cool, you know, train sets... The, the really cool train sets with the expensive trains with the little motors. You know, lots of track, lots of trains, lots of train cars to pull. And I ended up going down there and opening it up and taking trains apart. 
and breaking it up and damaging it. You know, I know he wasn't happy about it, but I have to say, you know, that's one of those things I always felt bad about. When I was in high school, and probably during one of my more depressed periods, I think it was 1986. Yeah, actually, it could have been 87. It could have been the spring of 87. But I think it was, no, it was the spring. It was spring of 86. Um, yeah, 1986. I ran for one of those stupid student body things. I wish I'd never done that. There were, there were these paths I could have gone down when I was in high school, and they would have been better for me. The the political bullshit was not good for me. Um, but I didn't have anything better to do, and I was probably really depressed, so I decided to run for, I think it was Attorney General, which really amounted to being the person that organized dances, and believe me, I did a terrible job at that um, my junior year in high school. But my brother actually was out there campaigning for me. He went and got a whole bunch of tulips from the tulip fields. And yeah, you can mock me if you want to. So we can make my little campaign, you know, pattern on the front lawn at the high school. Um, you know, he was always pretty much there for me when I needed his help. You know, he's my older brother. That's what older brothers do. You know, even if they're not way older than you, they're there to help. Um, Something that my brother and I did is we dealt with the fact that even though I love him and even though I've forgiven him, though I still wish I'd had more time with him because he died when I was 23, um, my dad was kind of abusive. Doesn't mean he was a bad person. And let, let me tell you something. Um, you really have to understand where people are coming from if you want to understand abuse. But he was kind of abusive. And that's one way of putting it. Psychologically abusive. He was really abusive to my brother. And yeah, he was kind of abusive to me and pretty much everybody in the family when he had a chance. And maybe it wasn't so bad the whole time. You know, my dad's world economically fell apart in the early 1980s. And even though the years after that he kept trying to put it back together, it must have seemed impossible. And so he probably had a lot of rage he took home, um, especially on those bad days where he just didn't have enough money to cover the bills. So my dad, yeah, he was kind of abusive, and my brother was one of those people I could talk to, and we were able to deal with it together in a lot of ways. I don't think it ever fixed it all, can't fix it all, but at least it was somebody in my life who I could talk to about it. A lot of people at the time... You know, I just really couldn't talk to you about it because it was just not part of the story. You know, to to anybody who would meet my dad looking from the outside in, he would have seemed like the coolest person in the world. And on a certain level, he was. But there was this different world at home. And that's just that's just all there is to it. But my brother was one of those people in my life who kind of helped me with that. My brother let me burn popcorn. At his, at his dorm. And not really burn. We were microwaving popcorn. I was visiting him. I think it was my last year in high school and I was going to go to the University of Washington like we're all supposed to go. I don't know why. But he was at the UW and I was at his dorm. It was, I think, Mercer Hall. And I think it was the spring of, of um, 1988, I think. 
I think it was the spring of 88 could have been the spring 87 but I think it was the spring 88 and you know I'm making popcorn but I forget about it and it turns off the alarm and the whole dorm got emptied out and people were saying somebody put microwave popcorn in the microwave again but didn't keep track I mean I don't know I'm not sure if I did that on purpose or not but I do know it was fun um my brother and I when we were in college would go see movies you know those were some tough years at one point we even um shared a studio together uh Gosh, that was, I think that was in Queen Anne. And those were years where neither one of us had a lot of money, but whatever money we had, we would go see a movie. Sometimes we'd go to Tup Tim Tai. You know, Tup Tim Tai, I think it's still there. I hope it's still there. It was there for decades. Really good Thai food. Um, we would go to Tup Tim Tai and, uh, you know get ourselves some Thai food and go see a movie. And those were really good times. Um, they weren't perfect times. They were pretty good though, in a lot of ways. <sighs> My brother became a really great dad. Nobody's perfect at being a parent, but I think one of the things you do have to be if you're a parent is understand your role is to care for your kids and not just be their friends. And I think my dad, I think my brother became a pretty good dad. I, nobody's perfect. I'm sure he feels like he made mistakes, but I think he did that. You know, I think that other parts of the world and our lives can fall apart. You know, I was married and I got divorced and he had to go through a divorce also. And I think that's pretty hard. And the last few years have been pretty hard for him. But I'd also say this too. When I went through my divorce, he actually helped me get set up in Indianapolis again. He and my sister there. Um, and after his divorce recently, he has chosen to do some very brave things. And I think with his eyes open, you know, he has been traveling around the world. He went to South America. He spent a lot of time in South America this last year. And now he wants to join the Peace Corps. Wouldn't be my choice. It isn't my choice. It's his. But he basically dealt with his divorce in a way that I think shows what kind of a guy he is. Um, and like I said, he still calls me. I don't know why. Um, I mean, I wouldn't call me. Like if I was, especially if I was having a bad day, I wouldn't say, let's call Dan. I wouldn't call me if I was having a bad day. I wouldn't call me if I needed advice on, you know, getting over depression. Do you have any whiskey? Do you have any cigarettes?
Yeah. Um, he still calls me, and I don't know why. But he does. Uh, you know, sometimes when I'm talking about a person I know, it might be him. And he listens to my podcast. And it's one of those things where if he's going to listen to my podcast as a way to understand where I'm coming from, he should also know that I love him. And that I respect him. And that he's a brave man. Next topic. Anyways, I'm going to read an article here. It comes from the EIA. I think that's the U.S. Energy Information Administration. Boy, I almost don't want to start reading this. But I'm going to read this article. And this article is about diesel fuel. The inventor of the diesel engine, Rudolf Diesel, originally designed his engine to use coal dust as fuel. He also experimented with vegetable oil before the petroleum industry began making petroleum diesel fuel. Most diesel fuel we use in the United States is refined from crude oil. Use of biodiesel made from vegetable oils and other materials is now also common. The first diesel automobile trip was completed on January the 6th, 1930. The nearly 800-mile trip was from Indianapolis, Indiana to New York City. The trip demonstrated the potential of the diesel engine design, which has been used in millions of vehicles since its inaugural trip. Most of the products we use are transported by trucks and trains with diesel engines, and most construction, farming, and military vehicles and equipment also have diesel engines. As a transportation fuel, diesel fuel offers a wide range of performance, efficiency, and safety features. Diesel fuel also has a greater energy density than other liquid fuels, so it provides more useful energy per unit of volume. In 2021, distillate fuel consumption by the U.S. transportation sector, which is essentially diesel fuel, was about 46.8 billion gallons an average of about 128 million gallons per day. This amount accounted for 77% of total U.S. distillate consumption, about 15% of total U.S. petroleum consumption, and on an energy content basis, about 25% of total energy consumption by the U.S. transportation sector. Diesel engine and trucks, trains, boats, and barges help transport nearly all products people consume. Diesel fuel is commonly used in public buses and school buses. Diesel fuel powers most of the farm and construction equipment, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, you can read this yourself because some of this is repeating itself, but this is a, you know, blah, 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 Yeah. The bottom line, folks, is that diesel is important. Now, I'm going to read a different article. And this is coming from Zero Hedge, Nom de Plume, Tyler Durden. Who the fuck knows who he is? It was published on October the 19th uh, on Wednesday. Headline, forget oil. Forget oil. The real crisis is diesel inventories. The U.S. has 25 days left. Now keep in mind, one of the predictions Zero Hedge made in the last year that they really thought they were right about and was so critical is that Jerome Powell would pivot in September. 
that's October, baby. And there ain't no pivot yet, and I don't, I don't know that he is. I'm not beating up on them too much. I just don't know what their agenda really is. Um, I'm not sure they understand. They understand the casino. Tylers understand the casino, but do they understand the casino is being set up to be burned? I don't really know. But let's continue. Headline. Forget oil. The real crisis is diesel inventories. The U.S. has just 25 days left. Ominous Starblazer's voice. For all the drama surrounding Biden's latest strategic petroleum reserve fiasco and his admin's ridiculous idea to stimulate U.S. energy producers to pump more oil because, you see, Biden promises to buy oil at some unknown point in the future. He may or may not, but right now he is certainly draining a million barrels of emergency U.S. energy lifeblood just to buy a few midterm votes, assuring energy producers have zero incentive to produce more. The real crisis is not oil or gas, but diesel. The crisis gripping the U.S. diesel market is getting out of hand as demand is surging while supplies remain the lowest seasonal level for this time of year ever, according to government data released Wednesday. According to the EIA, the U.S. now has just 25 days of diesel supply, the lowest since 2008. And while inventories are record low, record low the four-week rolling average of distillate supply, a proxy for demand, rose to its highest seasonal level since 2007. In short, record low supply, courtesy of stifling regulations that have led to a historic shortage of refining capacity, meet record high demand. What comes next is, well, ugly. While weekly demand dipped slightly in the latest week, it's still at the highest point in two years amid higher trucking, farming, and heating use. The shortage of the fuel used for heating and trucking, and generally speaking, to keep commerce and freight running, has become a key worry for the Biden administration heading into the winter, perhaps even bigger than the price of gas heading into the midterms. As, Bloomberg, as Bloomberg's Javier, Javier Blas writes, such low levels are alarming because diesel is the workhorse of the global economy. It powers trucks and vans and excavators, freight trains and ships and Santa Claus. I added that. A shortage would mean higher costs for everything from trucking to farming to construction. Wow. I'll leave it to you guys to read more about this. Um, let's talk about s some things that might be true. Not because they're telling us the truth, but because we can figure it out on our own. If you've never noticed how important diesel is to your life actually working, then you probably have been a really good user of the iPhone. Because you do enjoy staring at that glowing rectangle. But what's more critical than that glowing rectangle is that large tanker of diesel fuel, which, you know, newsflash, is being pulled by a truck powered by diesel, um, diesel fuel, you know, for the most part is what enables the military to function, you know, diesel fuel and aviation fuel. And so when you think about diesel, you should understand it's critical to pretty much the parts of your world that keep your world functioning. It's not to say that you can't keep it going with gasoline. You can, but it just becomes more difficult. 
And given that most of the trucking fleet is set up for diesel, I believe, most of the fleets of trains are diesel. I don't think there's any train powered by gasoline. So you've got diesel electric trains, you have diesel electric shipping, you have diesel everywhere when it comes to moving food, when it comes to doing the things you need to have done if you want your grocery store to have stuff there. So diesel's important. Um, I don't know, I, I know that a few months ago, one of the things I said was, ignore everything if you want to, but keep an eye on diesel fuel. And it did drop a little. Like, I think it went under five bucks a gallon where we lived, where, where we live, about a month or so ago. But it popped back up again. And this is at a time when I don't believe any of the stories about the economy being as strong as they say it is, everything's so strong. I don't think that's true. I'm not saying it's all in the dumps, but it isn't the super blazing economy. So to have diesel fuel be this expensive is a problem. It's a problem because it hits to the margins of truckers. Um, it's a problem because it gets to everybody's bottom line. It's a problem. And it might not have any kind of solution that would make anybody happy. That's also true. It might not have a solution. It really might not. There might not be any way around it. Um, you know? I'll tell you, diesel fuel, baby. You need it the way you need a wet lover on a Saturday night. The lights are dim. They're always dim. Because of those fucking LED street lights. The lights were brighter not so long ago. Now the race of humans crawls from one mishap to the next. In the twilight of these LED lights, in the shadow of an Al Gore toilet you need to flush 60 times. You need that diesel fuel to power your Volkswagen Jetta, and you don't give a fuck if it kills some old whale in California as long as the grizzle grease touches you and your witch wife steals the Dolby buttons. You need that diesel like you need to eat the food, the gombo grease, the wheel chiclet sandwiches and burnt out frosting pies. You need the diesel so your, your heart can soar on lightning figs and scrumbo wine. Diesel's important. Just saying. Every hooker knows it. Every pimp wants it. The world is made to function with it. Um, diesel's critical. Next topic. So I'm going to read an article from Zero Hedge. Once again, the nom de plume is Tyler Durden. Who knows if, who, we don't know who wrote this. It was published on Thursday. That's yesterday, October the 20th, 2022. Headline, Police Issue Warning Ahead of Halloween. Yes, police issue a warning ahead of Halloween after fentanyl pills were found in candy bags at LAX airport. And hey, this wasn't written by Tyler Durden. 
this is Lorenz Duchamps. Duchamps. Via the epic times like Bitcoin Meg, a big part of Zero Hedge now. CIA Mossad sourced. But I read on for this article by Lorenz Duchamp via Epic Times. Authorities in California have issued a warning to parents ahead of Halloween celebrations after approximately 12,000 fentanyl pills packaged in several popular candy boxes were seized at Los Angeles International Airport. With Halloween approaching, parents need to make sure they are checking their kids' candy and not allowing them to eat anything until it has been inspected by them, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department said in a press release. If you find anything in candy boxes that you believe might be narcotics, do not touch it and immediately notify your local law enforcement agency, the agency added. The giant seizure of the deadly synthetic opioid happened on October the 19th after narcotic detectives and agents with the Drug Enforcement Agency stopped a suspect who was attempting to pass the airport security screening with several bags of candy and miscellaneous snacks. Upon investigating the packages, authorities discovered that inside the sweet tart, Skittles, and Whoppers candy boxes were fentanyl pills. The release said, The suspected drug trafficker managed to flee the scene before being detained by law enforcement, officials said, noting that the suspect has been identified and the investigation's ongoing. Anyone with additional information about the incident is asked to contact the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department Narcotics Bureau at 562-946-7125. That's 562 562- 946-7125. Make sure you call them up. Say you saw a van. Say you saw a truck. Say you saw a plane covered in Skittles. And I read on. Fentanyl is a potent synthetic opioid that is 50 times stronger than heroin and 100 times more potent than morphine. As little as 2 milligrams is potentially enough to be lethal. An interesting number of Mexican cartels have been importing fentanyl from China before pressing it into pills or mixing it into other counterfeit pills made to look like Xanax, Adderall, or Oxycodone. The drugs are then sold to unaware buyers in the United States. Boy, you can, you can read more at the Epic Times, right? When I was a kid, you know, there was a lot going on back in the 70s. We had a lot of these hippies, man. The time when those hippies were settling down into their Clinton-Bush-style American exceptionalism BDSM parties back then. Back then, the hooker kings ran the hooker trade just over the tracks in Scompton, or Burlington if you lived in Mount Vernon, near the Golden Corral that got shut down last year because someone found a dolphin tattoo on their steak and a fingernail in their meatloaf. It was crazy back then. Half the parents you knew put razor blades in the kids' chocolate, mainly Butterfingers, because the next-door neighbor's dog told them to. It was awesome. 
When I was a kid, a lot of parents would put broken glass in their lemonade. They'd put it in the ice cubes. They would serve their lemonade in the hot sun. You'd crunch on that ice and your lips would be bleeding and the parents would laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh. Because it was so fucking funny to see those damn kids' lips bleeding. A lot of these folks, these parents back then, had PTSD from World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. <laughs> it was crazy. When I was a kid, parents would, you know, basically go out and find wild dogs and cover them in leopard moss and say, kids, if you want to prove you're an adult, wrestle the wild dogs. Wrestle the dogs with the rabies. If you want to grow up and be a man, if you don't want to be a little, a little kid any longer, go wrestle those dogs. We'd go on fishing trips near the old wharf, near that titty bar that burnt down. We would catch the weird types of wharf fish underneath the wharf, the ones with the tumors, the ones with the extra eye. We would cook them over a burn barrel using plastic as our fuel. That's, that was considered good parenting when I was a kid. We'd go on ski trips to the Cascades, you know. We'd go to Mount Rainier, Stevens Pass. We'd go to that place where the old springs of Dalek flow and the ancient ones do cocaine. We would go rub elbows with crazy freaks, you know, writing basic programs, making money for a young Bill Gates. That was considered, you know, a family outing. When I was a kid, you know, around about 4th of July, most of the parents would hand out little flamethrowers. They'd make from WD-40 cans and bits of hanger and rag, and they'd say, go set that thing on fire, because it's a commie, because it's bad. Go down the street, there are weird people that don't look quite right. Set their home on fire, is what they'd tell you when you were a kid. When I was a kid, in the springtime, in school, we'd build little guillotines, tiny little guillotines. Sister Una told us they were for the squirrels. When I was a kid. Okay, next topic. But yeah, when I was a kid, there was all kinds of scare stories about Halloween. You know, candy apples with razor blades. That's something that parents just did. They did it to teach us lessons. Like, just don't bite into an apple because you're given one. There could be a razor blade inside. And then people blew that way out of proportion. Like, you know, they'd say... Are you sure you should put razor blades in apples? And it's like the parents would go on Donahue and say, well, maybe not. But <laughs> how are they going to learn without pain?
So the last topic relates to a couple of movies. I have the links in the notes, which again, given that WRMI is still down to my knowledge, I've not received an email. It's possible that my show was canceled and they used Hurricane Ian as an excuse. Now that is awfully paranoid, or as my ex-wife would say, a lot of negative uh, ego enhancement. But the truth is, we don't know. I haven't gotten let an email. They haven't told me that the antenna still works. And even if it did, I don't know if I have the money to put the show on for a while. For a while, right? For a while. How long does a while last? But I do have a couple links to some movies that are on YouTube. Just understand, I don't recommend YouTube. I, I have these movies there because you can watch them. And other than maybe getting a commercial once in a while, they're not going to cost you anything. They are completely free. You don't even have to have an account to watch them. Just click on the link, right? And the movies are links to a couple, not the, not definitive, not definitive, but a couple of these movies that came out in the 70s and 80s and to some extent still come out. Like there was a, a flurry of these films during the Cold War. Um, so really, it wasn't just the 70s and 80s. I mean, one of my favorite, one of these movies is Panic in the Year Zero. And I think that movie came out in 59 or 60. But during the Cold War, um, a lot of these movies were produced. And these are movies about nuclear war and then what happens after. What happens after the bombs go off? What happens after the nukes have been dropped? You know, are you running for your life with your family from one cannibal horde to the next? Have the Wookiee people come down from the mountains finally to punish for punish us for our bullshit? You know, who knows, right? It's a nuclear holocaust. We don't know what comes after. A lot of people will just, you know, blink out completely. Like in that part of the movie that was shown on TV the day after, don't let your kids see this part because the skeletons glow. I don't think that's what happens. I just think you get vaporized. But the point is, how do you show that on TV? You show people skeletons glowing and then the people just disappearing, blinking out of existence, blah, blah, blah. But for those of us left behind, left behind, not in that rapture sense, but left behind in that nuke war sense, there were some movies that gave us some indications like A Boy and His Dog, another good one, A Boy and His Dog. You know, a boy and his dog. I have a couple links to a couple films in the notes, and one is Defcon Four. It came out in 1985, and the other, coming out in 1977, is Damnation Alley. Now, I'm not going to say these are my number one favorites, but because they're free, at least for now, because you can click on those links and see these movies, it's free entertainment. I don't know what you're doing tonight. If you're just a lonely old drunk like me, maybe you're going home, cracking open a bottle, staring bleakly into the corner of your room, and imagining all your regrets and all your sadness. But instead, you could be watching a movie about the apocalypse. 
Defcon 4 is a good film, and I'm going to give you a couple reasons why. One, even though it's hard to make a movie about space and nuclear war that doesn't end up looking way too cartoonish, it's not that cartoonish. Like, it gives you a kind of perspective on nuclear war that I think is a bit more realistic of, of how people would respond. I don't think people are robots. I mean, I know that the Air Force will tell you, we put people in those silos who will turn the key and not think about it, blah, blah, blah. And maybe that's true. Maybe there are people who are responsible in that nuclear machine who just act like robots. And if they're ordered to blow up Leningrad or some Russian is ordered to blow up New York or some Chinese guy is ordered to blow up Seattle, they just go ahead and do it and they don't really give a fuck. But my guess is that's not the whole truth. And so DEFCON 4 is a good film where right from the beginning, you get a sense that at least the director and the writer had a sense of humanity. That it wasn't just, let's make a movie showing nuclear war and the sexy aftermath. That's not what this movie was about. On the other hand, um, it is a movie with a sense of humor to some extent. It's definitely a film that echoes the kind of Australian apocalyptic dystopian viewpoints of the 70s and took that into in the basically Canadian filmmaking because I believe this is a Canadian film. Um, but again, I think it's a really pretty well done film for the genre. It's I don't know if a lot of the kids out there have ever seen it. Most of you kids weren't even born in 1985. But DEFCON 4 is a potentially an interesting look at the realistic aspects of nuclear war. And frankly, there is a tiny little kernel of hopefulness in the sense that, and I won't give it away, in the sense that maybe it's not all over. On the other hand, folks, I don't think any kind of nuclear war is something anybody should entertain as a possibility. The fact that we have people in our defense department who entertain it now and talk about it. It's one thing to wargame it. If you have to wargame incredibly heinous bullshit, you do that at the Pentagon, do it seven floors below the fucking surface of the earth. But you don't have to go on the fucking news and talk it up like it's a fucking option. That, that's what I would say to these motherfuckers. You know, if you want to talk about nuclear war as a game, go play your game in the basement. Prepare for it as you need to, but you don't have to go on the Sunday circuit, do you? That's my fucking opinion right there, as far as that goes. I am not a fan of the military-industrial complex. I'm not a fan of war as a way to solve problems. I'm realistic. I'm not a pacifist, but I would prefer our Defense Department not be ironically named. I'd prefer it to be about defense, be about protecting the United States. If you've got some axe to grind about some group or people you think we should blow up to protect some other group of pe group or people, listen, buddy, go raise money on your own, form your own Task Force X, but leave the rest of us the fuck alone. But that's not where we're at in the game. We have politicians talking about nuclear war like it's a thing that we could choose to do and it would all be okay. You have environmentalists talking about nuclear war like it's a way to heal the earth. So no, we're not, we're not in the game we were when I was a kid. When I was a kid, it was unthinkable. As an adult, a lot of the TV shows, like that one show, fucking The 100 or whatever, 
It makes post-nuke war look sexy and fun and amazing. And everybody is in good shape. And pretty much women still shave their legs. And I'm telling you, all that's probably bullshit. You're way closer to the truth with a boy and his dog or DEFCON 4 than you are with any of that crap that's come out since, you know, 9-11. You know, is that random? But since 9-11, we've been given visions of nuclear war for the most part that look really awesome. Um, there, there are some exceptions. Like there was recently a George Clooney movie that was pretty dark, but I don't know how many people saw that movie. Um, DEFCON 4 is a good one. I'm not going to give it away because I think it's a good watch if you want to watch it. Damnation Alley, I don't, I wouldn't put it in the same category compared to A Boy and His Dog or any of the Mad Max films or, Damn, or you know, DEFCON 4. Damnation Alley is kind of silly and cartoonish. Not as bad as The 100, but it's bad enough, you know. It's one of those situations where you just want something more, something darker to happen. Yeah, I, I like George Papard. He's a pretty good actor. And there's a film called The Blue Max. Great film about World War I. And he does a pretty good job in it, I think. And there's Breakfast at Tiffany's, right? Um, George Papard. George Papard's a great actor. But I did not love him in this. Like, you might have loved him in the A-Team I didn't love him in Damnation Alley. It was kind of one of those situations where you say to yourself, what if this was the, this, what if this was, <laughs> what if this was his interview for the A-Team? Because then all of a sudden these, these trucks make more sense. But, um, and the other thing I don't like about Damnation Alley is I'm not a big fan of Jan Michael Vincent, and I'll tell you why. I don't, it's not that he's not a good actor. He's probably a great actor, but he's got that, fucking baby face, okay? And I've even seen pictures of him today where even with the wrinkles, he's still got that kind of baby face. You just want to take your fist and punch him in the fucking face. No wonder he probably worked out a lot and learned martial arts back in the 70s because probably just about every dude that met him wanted to punch him in the face. And yeah, I think it worked great with women. Women love that. Muscular body, baby face. That's their secret fucking fantasy, baby. To me, it's like Jan Michael Vincent is an advertisement for just wanting to punch some random motherfucker in the face. And I will contend his career would have done better. He would have had better outcomes if he'd been in some horrible motorcycle accident or if some group of thugs just came up to him and said, you're Jan Michael Vincent, fuck you, and just kicked his fucking ass Kentucky style. So yeah, I, I'm not, I, I, but I do like the movie. It's a silly movie. You got giant scorpions. How'd that happen? The cockroaches I get in Damnation Alley. I get the cockroaches sort of, but how did these giant scorpions happen? How did they magic themselves into existence? It was, it was a lot to, it was a lot to take in. I would say that in the genre of nuclear aftermath films, there are a couple. Testament's a good one from the 80s. Um, pretty honest, pretty brutally honest. 
Testament's a good one. As far as like, you know, any TV show options, I think season one of Jericho, and there was barely a season two, I, I would call season 1.5 the season two, but season one of Jericho is an interesting view at the of the aftermath, not of so much nuclear war as the aftermath of the use of nuclear weapons. And, you know, in Jericho, I'll, I'll give this away because it happens in the first episode, um, many American cities are destroyed by hydrogen bombs. You know, huge, you know, large explosion, large yield, multi-megaton nuclear weapons, um, and including Washington, D.C. So you have, at that time, in that moment, in that TV show, the experience of what nuclear war would be like, um, except for the fact that it does stop. It, it happens in a day, and then it stops. There's an EMP blast later on, but after the EMP blast, there's no more nukes. Uh, it's just people struggling to exist in the United States. And in, in Jericho, the rest of the world is, from what you can tell, untouched, other than North Korea and Iran, because they basically say they, they nuke those places. Well, <laughs> well... But season one of Jericho is an interesting look at what life could be like. Um, the film Testament is probably closer to the truth, which is it won't be much of a life afterwards. It'll be a lot of slow death. Um, and there's probably no easy, pretty way to talk about it. It probably won't be like Judge Dredd. It probably won't be like Damnation Alley. If you're lucky, it'll be kind of like a boy and his dog or Defcon 4. Another thing I liked about DEFCON Def 4 is that even though in a relatively short period of time, society sort of devolves and then evolves into these weird feudalistic situations, the thing I liked about DEFCON 4 is it seemed like there was a theme to the power of the particular feudalistic leader, and that theme was revenge. That I do think, post-nuclear war, you're going to have a lot of people forming cults about revenge. It's one of the things I think the elite are afraid of right now is that even after the nukes go off, there are going to be people looking for payback. And, you know, the thing about cancer and radiation sickness and getting infected with a plague or whatever gumptus virus ends up evolving post-nuclear war is that you don't die instantly. And if there's enough of you and enough pain meds and maybe even enough weed and whiskey, you might make it to Antarctica. You might fly a jet with a little nuclear bomb. And yeah, so I think the elite probably are wondering how many people are going to go ape shit, form a little revenge cult, and take their nuke sub and their bomber and anything they have with nukes all the way to Antarctica and vaporize their settlements. It sounds insane. But again, we're talking about people, adults, who go on the TV and talk about nuclear war as an option. We're talking about a government that in 2014 sponsored a coup d'etat in the Ukraine, about 8 to 12 driving hours from Moscow. So these are not wise people. These are not intelligent people. These are people that starting many years ago have set up the chessboard for one possibility. Maybe not the only possibility, but one option. And that would be their last little setting the restaurant on fire because they stole everything they can stole nuclear war.
And frankly, since 2020, it seems like the people that probably really do run the world have already gone to the mattresses. They're already at their bunkers. They, they have their popcorn and their baby's blood, and they're watching all of this on TV. That's what it feels like to me. I don't have proof of it. I can't tell you with certainty, and I don't claim to have ESP. But if you ask me since 2020, the people with real power, the people you never see, have gone underground. It is Friday, October the 21st, 2020, Bo Blimptock. And if you're someplace out there listening to this podcast and wondering, Dan, why are you so angry? The answer is, look around, look at the sky, put down your smart device for five minutes and imagine your existence. You don't have to be angry. You don't have to be afraid. It's just a feeling. In fact, maybe the better question is, why do you fucking care? Why would you care if I was angry or sad or rageful or mad? Why would you care if I was racist, right? I mean, if I'm racist, if I'm a shitbird, why would you listen? How would you even know I was angry if you didn't like the podcast, baby? Here's the deal. I try to be honest. I try to be as honest as a person can reasonably be without talking about every gross, cringy detail of their life. And I talk about a lot of cringy shit, but there's a lot of stuff that's, you know, firewalled inside my head, and for good reason. Because I, I wouldn't want you to see that. Not because I'm a bad person, but because I'm a person, just like you. And there's parts of yourself that you firewall because you know it's dark, so I can't tell you I'm not going to be angry. Um, I can't tell you that I have a magical solution. I, I can tell you as a Christian, the last few weeks I've been struggling with my faith. To some extent, you know. And I work on it and I try to pray on it. And I do have plans to do things with this podcast that are related to my faith in the near future. And hopefully that will help too. But I struggle I've been asked some good questions by some very smart people, and, and it's one of the ancient questions that everybody asks a Christian. If God loved us, why? Why the cancer? Why the sky painting and the sky poisoning? Why does he allow wars? Why does he allow people to come into existence who can build nuclear bombs? If God is so good, why is the world so bad? Now, me personally, I've read the Bible, so I know the answer to that question. A lot of people love the benefits. Believe me, the Israelites love the benefits of having a Lord that loved him, that loved 
the people of Jacob that loved the men, women, and children of Israel. It was great, right? The problem is, is it came with responsibilities and obligations, and those weren't so great. It came with worshiping the Lord, even when the Lord didn't always give you all the gold you prayed for. It also meant not putting up false idols because you feel like the Lord, you feel like the Lord hasn't talked to you or spoken to you in, in a while. You know, this story of taking our sins and our choices and our fuck-ups and putting them on the lap of Jesus is an old, old story. We were given free will. We weren't, you know, this isn't Eden. We got kicked out of that place. But this place could be a garden if we understood it for what it is. But we don't, really. We don't. Some of us do, but not enough of us. So, yeah, I've been asked the question, why? If there's a God, why? And I don't have the full answer. I would suggest reading the Bible, the whole Bible, not just the New Testament. But beyond that, I don't have a good answer of why. I'm not God, and I don't have the plan for the universe. My name is Dan. I'm a hobo shaman, and I just get by here in Utah. If you're looking for those answers, there's something called prayer. If you're looking for those answers, there's something called the Bible. And yeah, there's more than one version of it. And I can't tell you if you should read the King James or the NIV. There are different choices. But if you want the answers, that's a relationship between you and God. Don't ask me. You're asking the wrong fucking person. I'm the person that shakes his fist at God. I I love Jesus. I know that Jesus died for me. But every once in a while, I shake my fist at the heavens. That's who I am. That's who a lot of us are. Sometimes we get angry.